The New Dentist Boost Camp is a one-of-a-kind CE course focusing on new dentists up to six years out of school. The next New Dentist Boost Camp, April 12th to 14th, has a few spots available live for interactive, in-person learning and unlimited spots to join us via live stream, viewable from any web browser. Register to be there live or view the live stream at www.dentistboost.com. Here are some Boost Campers talking about their experience from the first Boost Camp. Hope to see you there. New Dentist Boost Camp really gives us like a lot of resources that I didn't know about before, so it was really nice and some eye-opener, and it kind of creates a camaraderie for us um, to be able to see people who are still in dental school or freshly out or have been in associateship for a couple years or even somebody who has already pra- um, purchased their own practice. So it's really great to kind of have a network of a support system, and I think it's super worth it and really yeah, worth your time. It's tailored to younger dentists, so it's a uh, it's a great transition from dental school to CE in the real world. So you're surrounded by 19 other other uh, people that are in similar situations as you. So you're free to ask the questions you want to ask, and uh, it, you're a little more comfortable in that situation. Welcome to the Dental Amigos podcast with Dr. Paul Goodman and Attorney Rob Montgomery, taking you behind the scenes of the dental business world all the things you didn't learn in dental school but wish you had. Rob is not a dentist and Paul is not a lawyer, but since Rob is a lawyer, we need to tell you that this podcast is for informational purposes only and shouldn't be considered legal advice. Listening to this podcast does not and will not create an attorney-client relationship. As is always the case, you should formally consult with legal counsel before proceeding with any legal matter. Learn more about The Dental Amigos at www.thedentalamigos.com. And now, here are the Dental Amigos. Hello, everyone. I'm Rob Montgomery, and I'm joined, as always, by the head nacho himself, Dr. Paul Goodman. Hey, Rob. Great to be here. It's good to have you, Paul. And welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Dental Amigos. Today, we're joined by David Harris. David is the chief executive officer of Prosperident, which is the world's largest firm that investigates financial crimes committed against dentists and dental practices. David is uh, in line with our theme of guests that are focused in the in the dental world. David certainly is very focused in the dental world. He's a, a licensed private investigator, a CPA, and he's also dual certified in fraud investigation. David has lectured at colleges and universities in four countries and the faculties of business, law, and dentistry. Uh, David is a rule breaker in his youth. Uh, has changed his direction, has spent much of his adult life in the world of investigation and enforcement, where he uses his unrivaled abilities to understand the criminal thought process to help educate and protect dentists. And we're going to get into some of that hopefully today. Uh, David is a prolific author and frequent guest speaker at dental meetings and dental society meetings. He has a lot of experience coupled with his keen sense of humor uh, make him a great person to, to chat with. And so we're looking forward to having him on the show today. And now, without further ado, here's David Harris. Welcome, amigo, and thanks for being on our show. Ole, great to be here. I, uh, I, I've, I've admired this podcast for a while, and I'm, I'm thrilled to be a guest. Uh, thanks, David. It's great to have you. I know we're going to talk about some uh, exciting and valuable stuff. We like to start with a hard-hitting uh, question. Uh, if we were going out for nachos and I allowed you to order, what would be your uh, topping, your favorite topping of choice? Well, lots of jalapeno. Lots of jalapeno. Spicy guy. I like that. Yeah, I'm with you there. 
Cool. Although where I live, people insist on calling it jalapeno. <laughs> I scratch my head a bit. <laughs> that is not Amigo Land. Yes. <laughs> no. Uh, well, you know, to me, David, I think as we were, were chatting earlier, uh, I have a lot of interest in, in this topic. And you know, a lot of people that you know, know me as being a more of a corporate and business lawyer in the dental world, when I first started out right after, uh, after law school, uh, I was a litigator, and we litigated a lot of white-collar uh, criminal fraud cases, big civil RICO cases. So I've seen my fair share of, of schemes and, and, and theft. Uh, so it's still a, a place that's close to my heart. Uh, and uh, so it's, uh, it's cool to have you on the show, and I'm, I'm really looking forward to, to chatting about some of that stuff. And so for me, you know, in coming from that world and what my experience is, and this is something that you and I, you know, have talked about again briefly. Uh, people talk about kind of why people do this or how people can engage in in white collar fraud and, and criminal activity, especially in dental practices. Uh, if you can, let's let's talk a little bit about kind of what that looks like and and how you know what are the the events and the underlying causes that lead to these types of crimes. Absolutely. Um... Embezzlers in dental practices, I have found, fall neatly into a couple of categories. And I refer to them as needy thieves and greedy ones. <laughs> and needy thieves are exactly what you think they are. They have something going on in their life that puts their family finances upside down. They have more money going out each month than what's coming in. And they're stealing to buy groceries. So maybe they're getting divorced Maybe they're dealing with some kind of addiction issue or compulsive behavior like gambling. Um, but there's a, there, there's a financial imbalance, which they consider to be temporary, and they're stealing just to kind of make up that, that hole in the family's budget. So these people feel bad about stealing, but they just don't think they have any other choice. And then we've got the greedy thieves. And... In general, these people feel underappreciated by the doctor they work for. Um, a lot of them sort of look at their doctor as, as being um, a, a high-functioning moron with good hands. <laughs> and in their warped view, the only reason that that doctor is successful is because the thief keeps their chairs full and collects money when people leave. Right. And they kind of feel like the doctor should come to them and make them an equal partner in the practice. Right. Which, as we know, isn't generally realistic. And eventually, this person realizes that, that that's never going to happen, and then they start stealing. Right. So they're, they're stealing to address an emotional itch as opposed to a financial one. Right. Okay. Um, and, and they don't feel nearly as bad about it as... The desperate thieves do, They're the needy ones. These people are stealing to tacitly prove a point to, to their victim, even though the victim is, is really unaware. Um, one of our embezzlers, and, and, and I like to talk about her, she was stealing, and then she won $3 million in the state lottery. Wow. <laughs> well, if, if most of your staff won $3 million in the state lottery, they would quit, and right after they quit, they tell you what they really thought of you. Right. This lady didn't quit. 
she kept stealing. And, and here's the neat part. The amount she was stealing each month after she quit went up. Sorry, after she won the lotto, went up. So she was stealing more as a millionaire. That's a real passion for embezzling because uh, it can't be about the money then at all to her. Well, you know, that doesn't, that doesn't entirely surprise me, though, because like, there have been studies where people, and without going into you know, too far afield with this, and I've had some experience with this, where people that win the lottery are oftentimes have significant financial problems because they, just, they spend beyond their means and they have lots of people that are kind of like hanging on and uh, they don't have the same kind of resources for financial planning. So that, that does not surprise me. You know, I, and I think a lot of people that are in that situation are probably are easy targets you know, for, for schemes generally. So but that, that's, that's still that's crazy how, how ironic that is, David. It, it, it makes a statement, though, about why she was stealing. And it, it did not have anything to do with filling a hole in the, in, in the family's budget. Um, you know, obviously money was not her, her prime motivator. And greedy thieves are certainly not opposed to the money that they acquire by stealing. But it's not their, it's not their primary objective. They're, they're really making a statement by doing it. And, and she kind of epitomized that. So these, these people who, who may have some sociopathic kind of tendencies as well are stealing because they get some kind of pleasure from the act of taking a risk and getting away with it. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. You know, and, and I think what my sort of experience and observation has been with this, and I think a lot of people have this misconception that people that are white collar criminals or, you know, or embezzlers or, you know, fraudsters, that they have these just crazy elaborate like Hollywood type schemes and plans and they're, they're criminal geniuses and they come up with these these uh, these schemes that, that nobody's gonna understand or find them out. But in my experience, it's just always so amazing how lowbrow and, and basic it is. And you look, you're like, how could you possibly have expected to get away with that? You know, it's, it, it's not, at the end of the day, it's not, uh, they're, they're, not like, they're not like rocket scientists with this stuff. Um, I'll, I'll say we really see a range. We, okay. we see everything from very crude theft that, that wouldn't withstand much scrutiny at all to stuff that is really ingenious. Um, what I, what I think a lot of victims and probably the public don't really grasp, though, is how interactive and adaptive a process embezzlement is. In other words, every embezzler in a dental practice starts by studying their adversary, the dentist. What does she look at? What does she not look at? Even what's the best time of the week to steal? Or, you know, what set of circumstances will, will let me steal? Uh, we saw one embezzler, for example, and she worked for a female dentist. The female dentist had a commitment on Thursday nights that meant she had to leave the practice at 5 o'clock. What the embezzler was doing was, first of all, manipulating the doctor's schedule so that she was really heavily booked on Thursdays, right? Try, trying to make her run behind. And then that was also the day that all the stealing happened because the embezzler knew that the doctor would go flying out of the practice at 5 o'clock without slowing down to check the day sheet, for example. Right. So it was, it was beyond even observing the environment and into manipulating it. That's very interesting. So that kind of goes to the point, like, 
And I think we were talking briefly before we came on that, you know, in my observation and, and what I've understood, too, is, you know, this whole concept of the fraud triangle, right? So yes. that being, you know, these are the three things that kind of lead towards embezzling and, 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 and workplace theft. You know, the first thing being incentive or pressure. You know, I think that's what you talked about at the outset. If, if it's the needy thief, then it could be somebody that has the financial problems or the reason that they need to do it, essentially. And uh, the next thing is the rationalization. That's the second prong where, you know, you say, hey, I've been there. I've been an employee for all these years. This dentist can't, you know, wouldn't have made it without me. Like you said, they should have made me a partner. I deserve this. And then the third Rationalization thing, always starts with, it's okay for me to do this because. Right. And, 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 what, and that rationalization, what have you, what have you observed, uh, the, the, the people that have engaged in these crimes, what kind of ra- how do they rationalize it generally? Are there some, some, some common themes with that? Well, the classic rationalization is, you know, this is money that he or she should be paying me anyway. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, I'm owed this money. Um, she and then you, you, you get into rationalizations that relate to the doctor's behavior. You know, if, if the thief perceives that the doctor is aggressive with insurance, then that makes it okay. Uh, another one we see sometimes is, well, he would only waste the money anyway. So kind of I'm, I'm, I'm protecting him from his own overspending by stealing the money first. <laughs> that's um, that's we, incredible. Yeah. And, and, you know, let's, let's agree that sometimes the worldview of these people is a little bit twisted. Right. But, but that's, a, that's a common one. You know, the, 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 um, the, the classic case is um, the, de- the male dentist who remarries. And new wife is quite a bit younger and likes to spend. Right. And that gives all the rationalization in the world to somebody who works in the office and sees that and, you know, sees the amount of the doctor's money going to this, this new spouse and resents it. Um, so, you know, there are, uh, rationalization is never hard to find. Yeah. If you, if you work in the close proximity to a dentist that staff do, and you experience the significant economic disparity between doctor and staff, um, that's pretty fertile ground for rationalization. Sure. Yeah. They look out front and say, see a big fancy car and, and, you know, yeah. don't uh, think that, you know, they're, they're the ones that help them get there. Right. That's, that's it. So then, uh-huh. so then the third prong in that triangle uh, is opportunity. And that's what you said. That's what you were talking about a few minutes ago. Uh, where somebody has well, just that, the opportunity to do it. So in the example you gave us where somebody was stacking the schedule on Thursday, which they knew was a busy day because they knew that they would have the opportunity to, uh, you know, to, to be able to, to manipulate the system and, and to steal that day because nobody would be watching them, right? So what we're looking at, again, is the one being the incentive, two being the rationalization, and three being the opportunity to do it. That's right. Now, the, the, the fraud triangle, a little background for, for your audience who, who may not be as conversant in this as you. This was invented by a, by a criminologist named Donald Cressy in the 1950s. And he wrote a book that was kind of seminal in, in understanding the motivations of thieves, and it was called Other People's Money. Um, the problem I have with, with the fraud triangle, it, it, it has a lot of intuitive appeal, mm-hmm. but um, it 
it is not necessarily all that good at, at explaining why embezzlement happens, and it's really bad at telling us what to do about it. Sure. It, it, I guess um, for, for a guy like me, it's probably it's an easy way to sort of say, hey, this is what happened and why it happened. But, but tell us, why? Uh, how well, do you see that, David? Why, why, first of all, it, it's that? not predictive. In other words, you can have a situation where somebody has motive, opportunity, and rationalization, and yet they don't embezzle. Right. Uh, and you can find other cases where people have less of those things, and they do embezzle. So, you know, the fact that the, it, it, it's kind of like, um, there's a there's a comparable called the fire triangle, which which says to need fire you need uh, you need you need oxygen, a fuel, and a spark. Um, but that's kind of determinative. If you have those three things, you will have a fire. Right. Um, you know, if there's a can of gasoline and a lit match and and oxygen in, uh, beside it, there's going to be a there's going to be an explosion. Um, on the other hand, because there's a there's a behavioral element to this. Uh, the fraud triangle is is not nearly as determinative. Right, it kind of explains it, but doesn't doesn't predict it. Is what is what I'm. It hearing. doesn't predict it, and right. and it also doesn't tell you what to do about it. I mean, the first thing I'll say when we look at the three elements of the triangle, being again pressure, motivation, opportunity, and rationalization, the only one that is remotely controllable by the doctor is opportunity. Right. The 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 other two happen inside the head of the thief, and. We have very little ability to influence what goes on there. Um, you know, I, I, I will, when I speak to live audiences, uh, sometimes there will be somebody in the audience whose face says, it won't happen to me. And if I ask them why, you know, they'll give some explanation, like, I pay my staff really well. And the thought is that paying the staff well uh, takes away that financial pressure that, that, that might kind of push somebody into stealing. And I have to explain to those people that the average embezzler takes between 2 and 4% of, of, of the practice's collections every month. So if your practice is billing, let's say, $100,000 or collecting $100,000 a month, you know, it's somewhere between two and $4,000 that the embezzler is stealing. There are lots of outliers, but that's, that's kind of where the, where the average falls. Um, does the doctor really think that paying his staff an extra $2 an hour would scratch that same itch? Hmm. Um, so, you know, when, we, when, when we're a little bit uh, logical about this, we're going to say, really, the only thing I could possibly control is opportunity. The other two are, as I say, exist in, in, in the mind of the embezzler, and they're, they're, they're just out of my ability to influence. Right. So, so to your point then, so it doesn't tell you what to do, you know, let's just start off in the big picture here, you know, what and what should people be doing? I mean, we put out that, that Facebook poll, which was my first Facebook poll. Good job, Rob. Yeah, the dental nacho, yeah, yeah, I'm a polling expert. There's not, I'm an expert on a lot of things that aren't real. Nacho is polling. Maybe so, uh, Rob did a good job here with this. And, I, uh, I screwed it up though. I had a, I, you know, I had a text poll. I'm like, I, I don't know what happened. I posted it, disappeared, and Paul told me, you can't put a picture with a poll. So now I know, I will never try to put a picture with a poll. But one of the things that, you know, uh, I think like nine or 10 of the people that responded, uh, added a category, which I should have had, It's you know, which was, you know, I know I need help. I just don't know where to begin. So, you know, when somebody comes to you, David, and says, hey, you know, I, I, that was a great presentation. Uh, 
what should I do? I, I have nothing in place. Where to begin? Like, what do you tell dentists, and what, what's your process in that? Well, let, let's start by acknowledging the real issue, which is that nobody I've ever met went into dental school because they had this unstoppable desire to be a business owner. <laughs> we talked about that. Oh, yeah, right. Every, every dentist is a dentist and a clinician and a healer first and a business owner a distant second. And everybody has to make the trade-off between treating the next patient and running the place. And in, inevitably, running the place comes second for most practitioners. So we have people who really don't want to do this, and that's the first problem. Um, we also have a situation clinically where the way you do well in dentistry is to delegate. In other words, dentists legally are allowed to do their own, their own hygiene. It just makes no sense. Delegating hygiene uh, is, is, is far better economically for, for most dentists. Um, the same applies to the administration of the practice. I mean, I guess dentists could book in and out their own patients and have the patients hand them the money and so on, but it would obviously carry a huge cost in, in, in terms of productivity. So it gets delegated. What a lot of dentists struggle with, though, is the difference between delegation and abdication. Okay, what's the difference? Delegation implies some accountability. Abdication, which is, which is really what a lot of dentists kind of substitute for that, implies none. Okay. Like what, most dentists, what most dentists want is never to think about what goes on at their front desk. So they want to abdicate when really there needs to be a, a little bit of accountability. So let, let's talk about some accountability things. Um, one of the first things I'm going to say to your audience, and, and this is advice nobody likes to get, um, but when you do your review at the end of your day, the reports you are looking at should be ones that you printed yourself. In other words, to allow staff to print those reports and hand them to you creates the potential for what's called selective reporting. And by agreement that the three of us had before we started, I'm not going to talk about specific methodologies for stealing because I will guarantee you that there's an embezzler or seven who are, who are listening and trying to learn from this conversation. So I'm not going to talk specifics, but I will say that when somebody else prints the reports, there's a good possibility that what you're looking at is not everything you should see. Hmm. When you print the reports yourself, you eliminate that. Uh, quick, quick thing, David, because you brought up a good point before, and we had one of our more popular episodes was on, you know, how to track associate compensation. And, you know, I, I go, you know, I speak and I love speaking and I, I sit in lectures and, you know, you don't remember as much as you think, but it, these things stand out over the years. And I went to something when I was a, a young dentist about, you know, they said 7% of all dental procedures are never billed out, right? So that was sort of the check your day sheet thing. So in our office, we have a pretty, we have a very consistent system for checking our, our day sheets. Uh, when you are called in or asked to look at some of this stuff, what percentage of offices, I'm just really totally curious, even audit their day sheets on the doctor side or the hygiene side to say, hey, we did these procedures uh, and these are the ones that I'm going to sign off on before I leave for the day, which we have to do in our office. And I, I find at least one mistake each time because it's normal because a lot of procedures are falling, flying around. What percentage yeah. of dentists even do that? 
Um, I, I don't have any firm statistics on that. Subjectively, um, Paul, I, th- I think somewhere around 75% of dentists probably give their day sheets the, the level of scrutiny that they should. That's, that's good. That's more optimistic than you think. And maybe because I work with a, a younger crowd a lot of times, because I say, are you auditing your day sheets? And a lot of them say, what's that? So, you know, yeah. uh, that's, I just think, is a key point uh, that helps in a lot of ways uh, offices just behave better for many reasons. So, oh, let's, can you, I just wanted it, to point that true. out. It's true. Now, the, the, the only caveat to this discussion, and don't, don't take me out of context here, auditing your day sheet is something every dentist should do, no question. Um, however, if that's something you do and I want to steal from you, I'm aware that you check your day sheet. So the, the place that my thought process goes then is, okay, so I have to find a way of stealing that will not be discernible to the doctor with what he or she looks at on the day sheet. Oh, I totally agree with you. And I mean, auditing, I mean, it, that, I just, there's a, I'm like a 80s kid, so I mean, there was like the knowing is half the battle. I don't know if that was a G.I. Joe thing or not. I might be missing out my references. <laughs> it's hot, you know, but uh, I say to them, you know, I'm not just not trying to distract from our message, but, you know, if you're an associate just trying to make sure you bill out and get paid, the auditing of a day sheet's only to only a part of the p- puzzle or the nacho plate. It just lets you know what you did. It doesn't often have anything to do with payment. So I totally agree with you on that. Yeah, but it, it, it's it's a it's a good practice, and you're absolutely right. Not not doing it makes it easy to steal. Doing it makes it a little harder. Um, what, what we have to acknowledge here is that control measures do not convert thieves into honest people. You know, if I'm, if I'm walking down your street, and I've used this example elsewhere, if I'm walking down your street and my plan is to rob your house, and I'm standing at your front door, and I see the alarm sticker on the door, or, or I hear the Doberman barking inside, what do I do next? Do I give up my life of crime and go home and turn on the TV and watch football? Or do I get off your front step, go 20 feet down the road to your neighbor and rob his house instead? And I think we all assume that the answer is the second one. So your alarm system protected your house, but it didn't convert me into a law-abiding citizen. Mm. The difference between burglary and embezzlement is very simple. It's easy for a burglar to switch targets. It's very difficult for an embezzler to do the same thing. They have to quit their job. They have to find a new place to work. And then they have to invest the time in that new employment situation to understand enough about how the doctor thinks and and where the opportunities are. So that's a big hassle. The way that embezzlers tend to think is not that I need a different victim, but I need a different modality. Yeah, that makes so, sense. You know, this, the thought that if we just make it a little bit hard for people, um, you know, that will discourage them from embezzling is fallacious. Right. If if somebody's pushed by the pressures and they're at the point where they can rationalize doing this, in almost any dental practice situation, opportunity is going to be there. Um, and... and when, when you were asking early on, Rob, about my problem with the fraud triangle, this is really what it is. 
what, what, what the fraud triangle would suggest to people is that if you reduce opportunity, you'll have less theft. Right. Where I see opportunity as being really a binary variable. It's either there or it's not. Uh, and, you know, if, if you could, if, if I were working in your practice and you could, and I want to steal and you eliminate 50% of the ways that I could possibly steal from you, I still have the other 50%. And I only need one modality that works. Right. Yeah, makes sense. And I'm assuming, David, okay. this is just so interesting to me as a multi-practice owner. We do, and Rob and I do a lot with the transitions. And you know, is it possible to reduce the opportunity to zero? In most cases, I don't think it is. At least not without putting down your handpiece and kind of sitting there all day and watching your staff work. Um, if, if you're going to be a clinical dentist, I'm, I'm not sure that zero opportunity is, is anywhere close to possible. The other thing I'll mention that differentiates dentistry from a lot of other commercial activity is the fact that most of it is paid for by a third party. Um, when, when you look at the three kinds of activity that get victimized the most by white-collar crime, they are government, charities, and healthcare. And what differentiates those three from everybody else is, you know, most most businesses uh, exchange goods or services for money. Um, in fact, you know, it, when when the IRS audits pizza restaurants, you know, it's 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 largely a cash business. There's a lot of incentive to kind of put some of the money in in, in your pocket and just not tell the government. One of the ways the IRS does this is they go to the pizza restaurant supplier for pizza boxes and they say, all right, how many boxes did these guys buy last year? And from there, they can extrapolate what the pizza restaurant sales should have been and ultimately what its profit should have been. Um, you know, because, again, if, if, if you're exchanging goods or services for money, you can measure either side and, and determine the other. Um, Government and charities don't have that exchange at all. You know what? What? What they do in both cases is they take money from one group, typically, and distribute it to another. When we're talking about dentistry, the exchange is there, but it's imperfect, and the reason it's imperfect is because of insurance. Mm. So that's why I think healthcare is number is number three in terms of who gets victimized the most. Right, and it's harder to track that. And one of the things, too, is in these transition processes or even practices I've bought and Rob does is that uh, I use the, like, this has happened to me many a times in my life, like trying to use someone else's remote control at their house, and I just give up watching TV because you never yeah. know which buttons to push. And you're just like, oh, I'll just uh, sit here with my thoughts. Um, in the dental offices, it's just it's it's difficult to know how any of it works as a dentist because, you know, you're just you're not practicing in any way any way. Um, so much so that if my front desk wasn't there for a day, I'd just tell everyone, I guess you can pay later, right? So, you know, it's not easy to, uh, I don't know, everything else we learn as dentists, we can kind of oversee even if we delegate, right? So you talked yeah. about that abdication versus delegation, which is great. Um, I, 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 I feel unqualified to delegate this part of it. Fair enough. The... Um you know, the problem that a lot of people have, though, is that 
your practice management software is as vital to the well-being of your practice as your handpiece. I totally agree. And yet, and yet, you know that handpiece like one of your children. I lose um, my children a lot but, then. No, just, <laughs> but, but, but my the, children but break the a lot. Daphne wandering yeah, on a yeah, yeah, yeah. Street, Paul. Just uh, it's like, yeah. you know, that's, no, you're exactly right, uh, David. But, but this comes back. We talk about this a lot on this show and when Paul and I do lectures and presentations. This comes down to, you know, it, and I say this too often, that uh, it's, it's one of the challenges and one of the traps to being a professional who owns their own business. That, you know, and I, I have it myself, that, you know, it's easy to just lose yourself in the practice of your profession. And, and it's just not a luxury that you have. All this other stuff is going on and you have to pay attention to it, whether it's HR, preventing fraud, knowing what your overhead is, what you're paying for certain things. And, and it's that fine line. And I, I get it, Paul, what you're saying. I mean, look, you can't know everything. I mean, it's hard to delegate as opposed to advocate. But I see clients, and you see dentists that, that do this too, that definitely do advocate. And they just dump it on them. And let's face oh, yeah. it, you know, dentists are bright people. You know, dentists are very educated people. There's nothing that's going on in, in your office that you couldn't figure out. Oh, that's true. It's that's just true. a matter of whether you want to take the time to do it. And But it's just like anything with your business. You know, it's, it's about planning, being aware, right? Comes totally. back to that concept, you know. And, and if you're not going to be aware, then, hey, you know what? You're going to just be, you know, kind of leave things to chance. And, and that's a dangerous place to be. You know, I, I mean, I know, David, you, you give lectures and full days on this. And it just what you're sharing is so valuable. I mean, and I'll just, you know... Uh, chime in as a dentist owner and some of the things I've learned over the years you know we when in our town when we grew up they would sometimes put a police car with a dummy in it at a certain speeding place and that would make everyone stop speeding and we do a lot of these you know make some people stop speeding and we do some you know try to incorporate checks and balances that really do show that we are monitoring because we are uh, we're monitoring more a lot of times for accuracy but I think the 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 result is that, you know, prevents some chances for embezzlement by having... No, we do no, it, it, it just points the embezzler in a different direction. There's no prevent. Or, uh, um, uh, it's true, because the prevent defense never works in the NFL. <laughs> they always lose the game. Um, uh, but, uh, or we put in different systems, like uh, different people opening the mail, um, daily deposits, checking day sheets having the deposit emailed to the owners each day, that, that uh, it's not, it's genuine. We actually are trying our best let, to do. Let me give you a sobering statistic on this. Um, and, and this comes from a study the American Dental Association did about a decade ago. And what they did was they asked embezzlement victims, they asked dentists who were embezzlement victims, what tipped you off? What let you know that you had a problem? Um, and there was a wide range of answers. Um, what I did a couple of years ago was I went back and sort of reanalyzed the data and clustered it. And one of the one of the things I looked at was how much of the embezzlement that was discovered was found by some kind of chance occurrence, and how much of it was found by kind of the planned operations of the doctor's control system. Seventy percent of embezzlement was found by what I can only call dumbass luck. <laughs> Okay, where some unplanned event happened, and that unplanned event let the doctor know that he or she had a problem. Um, you know, one, one case I worked on came out when the office manager, who had never missed a day of work, broke her leg skiing on the weekend. 
And Monday morning, of course, she was not in the office, and there was a fill-in there instead. And eventually the fill-in came into the doctor and said, there's something weird going on here because I've gotten three of these very unusual phone calls today. Um, you know, and all the, all, all the control systems that people put in place and, and think are helping with this problem ultimately aren't very useful. A false sense of security is what it sounds like. This is like me trying to get rid of my dad, Bob David. So what you're saying is give up and eat as many notches as possible. That's what I mean. I'm just joking, but, you know, I... Uh, yeah. Well, well, back, back another, to what you, you said. Know, another one of the misconceptions is that a lot of people believe that their CPA or their accountant is on the front line of their defense against embezzlement. In that same study, when, when you know, people were asked the question, well, how is the embezzlement found? The answer my accountant found it, came up less than 4% of the time. Yeah, it doesn't surprise me. It's just not their role, right? Yeah, I mean, no, they're, they're only, their accountants take the information that's given them, probably oftentimes by the, by the embezzler. The, yeah, I mean, accountants really in general don't have the skill or the mandate to navigate through your practice management software. So really what they're doing is taking kind of the bottom line from your, from your practice management software as their starting point. And then, you know, they, they work it from there through expenses to what the IRS needs and what your bank needs and so on. Um, but their ability to question what happened inside the practice management software, which is where most of the bodies are buried in terms of embezzlement, is very small. Well, I mean, that's, that's the difference between uh, what an auditor does and what, what an accountant does in the ordinary course. You know, they don't, uh, CPAs at the end of the year prepare taxes. They don't conduct business audits, Right. That, that's right, and um, the, the the audience may not know this, but there are three different levels of work that you can get your C, CPA to do at your end. The highest level, which Rob just mentioned, is called an audit, and that's where the accountants have an obligation to verify the accuracy of the financial information. The middle level is is called a review engagement, and there they don't they don't go back and and verify its source, but they, they do a little bit of analysis, like ratio kind of stuff, to make sure that stuff looks reasonable. And the lowest level is called a compilation, which is really garbage in, garbage out. I take the information you give me and I transmogrify it into something that can be useful to the bank, the IRS, folks like that. But I'm not really questioning anything. Most dentists go for the lowest level. Even if you did the middle level, that, that review engagement that I mentioned, there's the kind of scrutiny that is applied there is very unlikely to detect embezzlement in the way it happens in dental practices. Do you recommend that people do audits periodically? No. Okay. It, it's not, not, not audits from their CPA, no. The, 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 the CPAs are not experienced enough at finding fraud in general. They really have no familiarity with, with practice management software. And that kind of audit is, is expensive and, and likely to be unproductive. Mm -hmm. If somebody has embezzlement concerns, then they need to go to somebody who investigates that, that specific issue for dentists. Makes sense. Uh, even people who look for fraud in other types of business all day are pretty poorly equipped to find this kind of embezzlement. 
Dennis, once again, being so special. Yeah, well, that's, it. Well, that's why, I mean, in so many different ways, it's important to work with people that understand the profession. But, but David, yeah. so when you were talking about delegation versus avocation, I just want to talk about a few other. You gave the one example of one way that you can delegate in, instead of advocate is to print reports yourself. If you can, give us a few other uh, examples or, or things that Ab- people can absolutely. do. Absolutely. Um, the other thing that needs to happen on a monthly basis, and this the doctor can do themselves or they can outsource, but here's the important part, not to somebody who works in the practice, is a monthly reconciliation between practice management software, bank account, merchant terminal account, which is, which is the, um, the facility in the practice that takes credit card payments, and if the practice offers some kind of patient financing like Care Credit or Lending Club, their stuff. So practice management software needs to be reconciled against each of those. And that reconciliation needs to be done by the doctor, the doctor's spouse, or a third party like a bookkeeper who, who, who does not work in the office. Office manager, front desk staff cannot be doing this reconciliation because that would be giving the fox the keys to the hen house. Right. Now, the the only problem is that even if that reconciliation comes out perfectly, that does not mean embezzlement is not happening. Um, your practice management software, to use words that are uh, in vogue these days, can be full of fake news. <laughs> there are lots of ways to make the, the, the balancing process happen perfectly, and embezzlement is still going on. Um, I'm not going to go into them here, but... I suspect we'll we'll give my contact information at some point, and if a if a doctor wants to have that conversation with me in private, I'm I'm happy to do it. Great. Yeah, sounds good. So, okay, so that's is there is there any are there any other examples of where you can delegate instead of advocate? Um, yes, there was uh, there there was something that you you, you mentioned early on. Uh, things like bank statements and any anybody who mails a statement to the practice, those should go to the doctor's home not the office. In other words, I'd like the doctor to be the first person to see that stuff, and, and I'd like to remove any opportunity for a staff member to tamper with it. And the doctor should read it when they get it, right, David? It's, just, it's not a matter of just well, getting it home that, and taking that, it in, that's, right? That's even better, but even at a minimum, just having the stuff go to the doctor's house, at, at an absolute minimum, it creates some ambiguity in the mind of staff as to what the doctor's doing with it. Right. Um, one theft that we saw happen because the office manager in a practice noticed that there was one bank account that the practice had that the doctors had more or less forgotten about. And the reason she knew that is that, that the statements were coming to her and nobody ever came to her and asked for the statements. So she knew that, that this account was, was kind of out of the doctor's cognizance and uh, guess which account she stole from. Yep. So, yes, the, 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 the best approach is for the doctor to open the statements and review them carefully. Um, realistically, probably not everybody's going to do that. If you're not going to do that, the second best is let's at least let the staff think that I am or wonder whether I am. Right. Yeah, let's get the perception at least. All right, so uh, back to our Facebook, you know, poll. You know, 
one of the questions which a lot of people you know checked off is you know I know I should have systems in place, but I don't know where to start. David, where should people start with this? Well, um, in you know, there are a lot of different practice situations out there. There are practices that people started from scratch. There are practices that people bought from somebody else and kind of inherited the, the old doctor system. Um, e- either one can be problematic. I mean, there are, there are lots of um, people out there in, in the business of consulting to practices, and, and a lot of those folks are pretty helpful at setting up some, some basic systems. Uh, the problem that, that that group, the consultants, suffer from in general is that they don't understand embezzlement all that well. And, uh, you know, the, you, you've heard the old saying, I'm sure, that locks are really good at keeping honest people out of a space. <laughs> right. Um, and I'd say the same thing about most practice systems and most things that consultants advocate as, as protection against embezzlement. You know, they they work better with honest people than dishonest people, and there's a there's a, a certain thought process that these have. I'll, I'll tell you when I hire staff, and we've got we we only work with dentists. We have about 30 people in total. When I hire investigators, the overriding thing I'm looking for is the ability to think like criminals, and that's not as common as you might think. I mean, probably one out of ten people we interview has has the right amount of that. And to be clear, I won't hire criminals. I want people who could have been criminals who who can think like them and and who chose not to. That's a very small segment of the population, yeah. right? You have a criminal mind, but you're a very good person. So yes, sign up. That's it. You're, that's, you're hired. That's exactly what we need. <laughs> you think like a criminal. You're my guy. Yeah. You think like a criminal, but you have no have no record. <laughs> exactly. You're my guy. So, do you uh, do you consult for dental practices that you know kind of help them with put systems in place, David, or do you guys only come in at the end to, to investigate when there's been a problem? We we do both. We do we do investigative services, and we also have a product called Office Protection System, where we will review a doctor's systems, help them identify the weaknesses that an embezzler could exploit, and then address them. And do you do that on an ongoing basis, or is that sort of like a, a one-time uh, engagement or a periodic engagement? The, the hope really is that it's one time and that, you know, we, that we can help the doctor achieve permanent change in their practice, at which point they don't need us anymore. Um, that's the goal. I, I'll say that we do have some folks who come back to us, you know, three or four years after we've worked with them, and they say, you know, I've had a lot of personnel changes, and I'm concerned that we've kind of atrophied some of the things that we set up. So can you guys take another look and just set us on the right track? So we, we do have some of those kind of refresher engagements, but it's, it's not designed to be sort of an annuity thing where somebody's, you know, paying us every month forever. Right. Yeah. Yeah. This is, this is good stuff. I mean, I think like anything, it's, you know, nothing's foolproof either, you know, and at the end of the day, you can only do the best to stack the deck and try yeah. to control the things that you can control, right? What what is the the real controllable here is not whether or not somebody steals. It's how long they get away with it undetected. Mm. That's that's the thing that we can influence. You know that that first act of stealing when when somebody wakes up one morning and says today's the day I'm going to steal from my doctor, it's going to happen. The question is is it still happening a year and a half later or has somebody caught it? Yeah, 
That's powerful stuff. Yeah. Because the difference between those two outcomes is huge. Yeah. And to do the math, if you're 32 years old and somebody gets away with the average, and the, the average amount the last time we looked at our case files that people got away with was $109,000. So if a, if a 30-year-old loses that amount, right, there's that old rule that it's 7% money doubles in 10 years. So at age 70, uh, it's, it's that doubled and doubled and doubled. In other words, to the, basically to the power of six. Um, and, and, you know, there's, there's more than a million dollars that's come out of their retirement account because of that embezzlement. Yeah, well, I mean, I've seen it too uh, from a transition standpoint, David, where somebody wants to sell their practice. And guess what? Mm-hmm. Take $100,000 of profit off and the EBITDA number's not looking yeah, so good for true. you to do your deal. I mean, that can have, again, an exponential impact on, on the value of this, of this very important asset. It absolutely can. And then the, the, the second, you know, the second effect, which is a little bit more subtle, is the desirability effect. In other words, if I buy a practice where I know embezzlement happened last year, yeah. I have to think that I'm going to get involved un, un, involuntarily in, in the cleanup of that. I mean, embezzlement is concealed by adulterating the records of the practice. And that creates a long-term problem. I was just talking to somebody on the weekend who sold their practice sort of relatively quickly after an embezzlement happened. And I asked them how much it devalued the practice by. And they said $350,000. Doesn't surprise me. So, so that's not the EBITDA effect. That's simply the effect of somebody knowing that they're, they're buying uh, what we call in Canada a bag of hammers mm-hmm. and not, not liking what they see. Well, I mean, once it's just like anything, you're doing due diligence, you're relying on the numbers that the seller's providing it with. And now, you, as a buyer, you're on notice that these numbers do not accurately yeah. reflect what's going on in this practice. I mean, that's just, an, you know, there is a huge red flag. And you have to wonder what else is not right, you know, uh, it's just a basic that, level. That, that's right. And when you, when you think about how, how buyers price an asset, one of, the, one of the inputs into the rate of return that they need is the level of risk. So if you increase the level of risk, a buyer needs a higher rate of return on an asset. And what that means is they will pay a lower price. So that's, that's what's happening. You know, the cap rate that you need on, on the cash flow, when, when that cash flow is uncertain, becomes a lot higher. Right. Yep, that's it. It's the name of the game. Hey, Dave, this is all really uh, good stuff. And thanks, uh, thanks for taking the time today. And I think our listeners are going to get some good, uh, good takeaways from this. Uh, how can uh, can dentists and uh, dental practice owners uh, find you? Well, our our website is one that people probably won't have a lot of trouble remembering. It is www.dentalembezzlement.com. <laughs> I like that. I like this. Like dentalnonsense.com. And, and, and the only trick in there is that sometimes people misspell embezzlement. Um, <laughs> But as long as you get that right, you're, you're, you're golden. There's some bad um, landing site that exploits that opportunity, I'm yeah, sure. Yeah. yeah. No, nobody's, no, nobody's set up a, a clone site of ours yet. <laughs> Not yet. So, uh, and unfortunately, you know, there are three or four common ways to misspell embezzlement, so I'm not sure how we'd cover them all anyway. Well, we, but, we, will, we will get the accurate spelling of that up on the show notes, Paul. That's for a, sure. We'll be good with that, that's David. perfect. And then, uh, so... You know, they can always start through our website and, and, you know, there's a contact us feature that they can, they can use there. 
Um, people are also welcome to call us, and our toll-free number is 888-398-2327. Again, 888-398-2327. Or if somebody wants to email me, my email address is david at that same domain, dentalembezzlement.com. Okay, great. We'll get all that up on, uh, on the show notes if people are in their car and they couldn't write that down. Uh, is there anything else, uh, David, that you'd like to, to tell our audience about or anything upcoming or opportunities uh, for people? Yes, there is. Um, I, I'd, I'd like to make an offer to your audience. Um, one of, another thing that came out of that American Dental Association study that was, that was done on embezzlement victims in dentistry was that the majority of embezzlement was telegraphed not by some kind of financial uh, irregularity, but by a behavioral one. In other words, most thieves act visibly like they're up to something. And the best way to detect embezzlement is to look at behavior and not necessarily the financial issues. Um, and I could, I could talk about lots of them. You know, people who are stealing sometimes don't want to take vacation or they're very territorial about their duties or even their workspace. I mean, there are, there are a lot of things. Um, I'm going to make it easier and, and um, very affordable for your audience. We have something that we developed, and this, this started as something we were using internally, and then we made a decision to share it with, with dentists called an embezzlement risk assessment questionnaire. So what it does is it asks a doctor about 40 questions. They're, they're yes-no questions, and on the basis of the answers, they, they get a score, and the score tells us the likelihood that they're being stolen from. So. We normally sell this on our website for $139. What I'd like to do for your audience, and, uh, and I'll extend this to the, um, the Nachos Facebook group as well, uh, is for, for a three-month period to make it available to them at no cost. Thank you. That's oh, awesome. That's great. Thank you, David. So I'll, I'll supply a link which can go in the show notes, and, and uh, Paul, you're free to put it in the, um, in the Facebook group as well. The link will be good until, let's say, January 31st of, of 2019. And any, any doctor who's, who's in listening or, or a member of uh, that group is free to take the questionnaire at no charge. So it takes about, I would say at the outside, 15 minutes to complete the questionnaire and within 10 minutes after completion, they'll get back a score and, and some commentary and obviously it, it, on, on that basis, if they want to have a conversation with us, we're happy to do that. Yeah, that's great. Awesome. Thank you, Thanks David. so much, David. It's, it's been research. really a, a, a great, great value you've shared, and we really appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for taking the time today, David. It's uh, it good having you. Lots of uh, interesting stuff. Scary, right, Paul? Yeah, but yeah. Interesting. Is important. It sure is. It keeps coming back, doesn't it? Yeah. Thanks, David. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another great podcast with The Dental Amigos. And don't forget to tune in next time to have the dental business demystified. If you're looking for more information about today's podcast, you can find it on thedentalamigos.com. If you're looking for Paul, you can find Paul at drpaulgoodman.com. And if you're looking for Rob, you can find him at yourdentallawyer.com. This podcast has been sponsored by Orange Line Media Group, helping dentists and other professionals create content people love. Find out how we can help you take your business to the next level at www.orangelinemg.com. Till next time.